You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today we start a new series, this on French mariner Jacques Cartier, who was one of the earliest explorers of modern Canada, specifically in the region of the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the St. Lawrence River. A few notes about this show. One, this will not be a long series, just two episodes. Two, as Cartier was French, there will be a lot of French names, plus there are a lot of indigenous names as well. I have my resources to help with pronunciations, but my apologies if I get anything wrong. 3. Taking a look at a map of the St. Lawrence region will probably help you enjoy this series. I've posted one on our website, explorerspodcast.com, showing the roots of Cartier's voyages. That is it for notes. Let's talk about what we are going to cover for today. First, we will do some background on Cartier. That will be brief, as not much is known about the man's younger years. Second, we will do a quick look at the history of exploration of the region we are going to visit, which is the St. Lawrence area of Northeast Canada. This will set the stage for Cartier's voyages. Third, we will finish with Cartier's first expedition to North America. We will cover the man's second and third voyages in episode two of the series. So that is it. Let us get going with the voyages of French explorer Jacques Cartier. Jacques Cartier was born in 1491 in St. Malo, an important trading port on the English Channel in the Brittany region of northwest France. Brittany is the area of France that pokes out into the Atlantic Ocean. The natives are called Bretons. Today, most people see it as part of France, but when Cartier was born, it was an independent political entity. It would not actually come under the rule of the French crown until 1532. Anyhow, not much is known about Cartier's early years. He likely went to sea at a young age, and we know that he studied navigation in Dieppe, France. By all accounts, he was a respectable and successful young man. In 1519, he would marry Marie-Catherine de Croche, the daughter of the High Constable of Saint-Malo. The two would have no children. Since Cartier was born, married, and died in Saint-Malo, it's likely that he spent most of his life there. The port was a jumping-off point for ships engaged in the North Atlantic fishing industry, as well as overseas trade, not to mention French privateers. We have evidence that Cartier would participate in voyages to Brazil and Newfoundland. What exactly he was doing on these voyages, we don't know, but Cartier must have risen up in the ranks of importance, because when it came time to conduct an expedition to explore North America, his name would be suggested to King Francis I. Now, before we get Cartier exploring, we need to do some background. The first landing in North America was led by John Cabot, an Italian sailing for England, in the summer of 1497. Cabot probably landed in Newfoundland, although we don't know the exact location. 
Anyhow, Cabot's Landing was the first in the region since the Vikings 500 years earlier. It would open up a whole new area for exploration. However, exploration of these new lands was not quick to happen. Breton fishermen would come to the region in 1504. A few years later, navigator Thomas Aubert brought back the first natives from North America to France. But these early discoveries and encounters were mostly the result of fishing expeditions. The North Atlantic fisheries, called sea silver, were a growing and lucrative industry. And not just for France, but for mariners from England and the Basque Country, the latter of which is part of modern Spain. However, these people did not go to North America to explore. When ships reached Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, it was often by accident or because a storm blew them there. They might have gone ashore to collect water and timber and even trade with the natives, but they rarely documented locations or collected scientific data. This takes us up to the early 1520s. As noted, the exploration of the North American coast was slow, but people began to wonder about the possibilities of a northern route to the Pacific Ocean, aka the Northwest Passage. Who would be interested in such a route? Well, the Spanish were focused on exploring and colonizing the Caribbean and Central America, and the return of Magellan's fleet offered the Spanish crown its own route to Asia. And the other great maritime power of the age, the Portuguese, had a route to the Far East by going around Africa. Only a decade earlier, they had made contact with the famed Spice Islands, and so their efforts were focused on developing and protecting that trade route. This left France and England as the most logical nations to be interested in a northerly trade route to Asia. However, both of these kingdoms were more focused on internal matters as opposed to colonial expansion and exploration. But money is a powerful thing. As the riches of the Aztec Empire flowed to Spain and ships full of spices and silk arrived in Lisbon, the lure of overseas wealth caught the attention of the monarchs of Europe. And into this picture enters Giovanni da Verrazzano. Verrazzano, who was born around 1485, was an Italian navigator living in France. He had made numerous voyages to the Mediterranean as well as the New World, the latter likely part of fishing expeditions. Some believed he visited the North American coast, likely Newfoundland, on a voyage with Thomas Aubert in 1508. By the early 1520s, he was a respected navigator. At this time, Verrazzano would approach the French crown with the idea of exploring the New World, with the intention of discovering new lands, and finding a northerly route to the Pacific Ocean and Asia. While the French king, Francis, was open to such an idea, he was an ambitious man, and he saw others making big money and building up their empires, and he wanted in on the game. And thus, Verrazzano would sail to North America in 1524, landing in what is now North Carolina. He would spend about three months sailing up the North American coast, reaching as far as Nova Scotia, Canada. He is credited with being the first European to reach New York, as well as Cape Cod, Along the way, he did a good job of detailing his voyage and collecting geographic, nautical, and astronomical data. Some historians believe that Jacques Cartier may have been on this voyage, but we don't know that answer. By the way, Verrazzano would conduct another voyage to the New World a few years later, this time to the Caribbean. However, things would turn out poorly for the guy. Very poorly. He would be captured, killed, and eaten by some natives. We will detail his story someday in the future, as the guy deserves his own episode. Anyhow, Verrazzano's voyage would provide the first solid exploration and mapping of the North American coast, and it would set the stage for further investigation. And that takes us up to 1532. Up to this point, the Duchy of Brittany was, technically, an independent kingdom from France. For decades, there were dynastic and legal gymnastics about the rule of Brittany, but in 1532, King Francis would officially fold the region into the French kingdom. This would make Cartier a citizen of France. 
and thus he would present his idea of an expedition to North America to the French crown, his goal to find the Northwest Passage. Cartier would be aided by Jean Lavigneur, an influential bishop and abbot and court official. The bishop would introduce Cartier to the king in 1532 and recommend him to lead an expedition to the New World, pointing to his past voyages to Brazil and Newfoundland as proof of his abilities. King Francis was intrigued by the idea and wanted to follow up on it, but there was a potential problem, and that was the Catholic Church. If you've listened to some of our older episodes on Magellan, Columbus, and other Spanish and Portuguese explorers, we talk quite a bit about an agreement called the Treaty of Tordesillas, which was signed in 1494 and was very important. The treaty is based on a papal proclamation called a bull, which essentially set up a line going north-south that said, Spain gets stuff to the west, Portugal to the east. The 1529 Treaty of Zaragoza would further define things, but this north-south line was still in effect. The problem for the French crown, which was Catholic, was that if the papal bull was taken literally, they were not allowed any sorts of land in the New World, or really anywhere. Well, Lavigneur would meet with the Pope the following year in Marseille and get him to agree that the papal bull only applied to areas that were already discovered. This would be the opening that the French crown needed to start plotting overseas exploration. The crown would thus give Cartier two ships and order him to travel west to claim new lands, find the Northwest Passage, reach Asia, establish new trade relations, and bring back gold and spices. The two ships were possibly caravels, small and fast ocean-going vessels. At least one of them was armed with a few small artillery pieces. The names of the two ships are not known. The crew totaled 61 men. Cartier would officially be given orders on March 19, 1534, and he would set sail about a month later from Saint-Malou. Now, a couple of important notes about Cartier's voyages that I want to share. He would make three voyages, and none of the original documentation from these expeditions has survived. This would have been logbooks, journals, that sort of thing. However, and this is huge, Cartier would, after his journeys, write out a narrative of each of the voyages. The result is the most informative and reliable descriptions of the St. Lawrence region from the 16th century. Cartier provided a wide range of detailed information, including descriptions of the lands and people they encountered. Are these masterpieces? No, not by a long shot, but they are really good sources, especially for the time. Here are a few details about these manuscripts. The report of the first voyage was initially published in Italian in 1565. The report for the second voyage has been lost, but various versions would pop up, allowing the text to be saved. Both of these narratives were likely derived from the ship's logbooks, and there's a good chance they were written by Cartier. The manuscripts were probably put together to convey to important figures, such as the king, a more story-like feel. It talks about where they went, the cool stuff that they found, future possibilities, that sort of thing. This was important because Cartier wanted his sponsor to be happy with what he had done and hope they'd pony up some more money for the next venture. The third voyage report was not published until 1600, it was put out in English by famed publicist Richard Hawk Clute. The original text has been lost, and no earlier versions exist. In the end, these three reports provide far more documentation than was typical for the age. So often we end up with just basic summaries of these early voyages, which never really captures the flavor of what really happened. So this kind of source material is just great to have. Anyhow, Jacques Cartier and his little fleet would depart from Saint-Malou on April 20th, 1534. Now, let's remember that Cartier was, for the most part, following existing ocean routes that had been used by fishing fleets for 30 years. He knew, roughly, where he needed to go. For the ocean voyage, the ships likely would have been provisioned with food typical of the era. There would have been biscuits, salted pork and beef, cheese, onions, beans, butter, peas, sugar, and fish. 
fresh fruit and vegetables would have been limited. I want to note that scurvy, the bane of ocean-going vessels, was not really an issue for Cartier as the voyage across the Atlantic was not that long. However, scurvy will rear its deadly head in our next episode, when his crew will be forced to spend a winter in Canada. But for just crossing the Atlantic, scurvy is not a problem. Cartier and his fleet would make outstanding time on this first voyage, catching favorable winds much of the way. The crossing of the Atlantic would take only 20 days, the fleet reaching the eastern edge of Newfoundland on May 10th at Cape Bonavista. Almost immediately, Cartier would put into a sheltered harbor due to the fact that there was too much dangerous ice along Newfoundland's eastern coast. They would stay there for 10 days before finally setting off to the north. One stop along the route would be a place called the Isle of Birds off the Newfoundland coast. Today it is called Funk Island. The island was surrounded by broken ice, but Cartier would send his longboats ashore. There they would find the island absolutely covered by millions of birds. Of the great mass of birds, Cartier would write that their, quote, numbers are so great as to be incredible unless one has seen them, end quote. Cartier would record encounters with other animals as well, including polar bears and walruses, the latter he calls sea cows and seahorses. Cartier would continue north, up the coast of Newfoundland, to its most northerly point, often dodging floating ice along the way. Now, if you look at a map, you'll see that Newfoundland is a huge island, sort of shaped like a triangle. If you head southwest of the island, going roughly 75 miles, or 120 kilometers, you run into Nova Scotia. To the north of the island is Labrador. There is a narrow strait between Newfoundland and Labrador. This is called the Strait of Belle Island, and Cartier would reach it on May 27th. It is approximately 125 kilometers, or 80 miles, long. The width ranges from about 60 kilometers, or 37 miles, to as narrow as 15 kilometers, or 9 miles. Cartier called this a bay because he had no clue it actually led to a larger body of water. It is here that Cartier and his ships would begin their exploration, heading southwest into the strait. The first part of the strait was known to fishing vessels, but as Cartier ventured through the strait and down the western coast of Newfoundland, this was new territory for Europeans. Now he was in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. The Gulf of St. Lawrence is big, more than 300 miles across in spots, or 480 kilometers. There are islands, big and small, all over the place. As Cartier sailed into the Gulf, he well may have wondered if he had already reached the Pacific Ocean. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what does Cartier do now that he has ventured into uncharted waters? Well, as a navigator, he charts things. He's really good at this, 
taking notes of rivers, harbors, coves, and islands. Remember, this guy is an experienced mariner, and he collects data, such as the depth of the water, that is going to help other sailors. He knows what's important. But Cartier does more as well. He takes note of the soil, the trees, the plants, the weather, the animals, and the landscape. He sees economic and colonization opportunities. It would have provided a fuller picture of these new lands to his sponsors. It's really quite extensive, and as a reader, you really appreciate the man's even tone. Another thing he takes note of is the people. He knows pretty much that these lands are not uninhabited. The French would see the indigenous people from their ships as they moved into the Gulf. Here was one of Cartier's first descriptions of the native people, saying they were, quote, wild and savage folk. They wear their hair tied up to the top of their heads like a handful of twisted hay, with a nail or something of the sort passed through their middle, and into it they weave a few bird's feathers. They clothe themselves in the skins of animals, both men as well as women, end quote. It's a really good description and typical of Cartier's writing. Cartier and his fleet would sail down the western coast of Newfoundland and strike out west across the Gulf. In the middle of the Gulf, they would reach an island that was, again, packed with millions of birds. This island today is called Rocher Azwazu, or Bird Rock, and it is a wildlife sanctuary. One of the bird species found in abundance on the island was the great auk, a large flightless bird that resembles the penguin. The great auk reached three feet tall and a dozen pounds. The men of the fleet would kill a thousand of them, providing a bounty of food. The great auk, by the way, is not related to the penguin. However, it is of the genus Penguinus. It turns out the Europeans encountered the great auks before penguins, and when they did run into the penguins, they named them after the great auks. Penguin from Penguinus. Sadly, the great auk went extinct around 1850 due to overhunting. The bird was valued not just for its meat, but for its feathers. Anyhow, from there, the fleet would quickly reach the Magdalen Islands in the center of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. The ships would continue west for roughly 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, and come into contact with what is now called Prince Edward Island. They would then go north and reach the Canadian mainland in what is now the province of New Brunswick. At the end of June, about 70 miles north of Prince Edward Island, or 110 kilometers, the fleet would enter what Cartier called Bay des Chaleurs, or Chaleur Bay, which translates as Bay of Warmth. This is a large bay, and Cartier praised the beauty of it. In fact, I want to share a few sentences Cartier wrote about the bay. Quote, The bay runs east-northeast and west-southwest. The land along the south side of it is as fine and as good land, as arable and full of beautiful fields and meadows as we have ever seen, and it is level as the surface of a pond. And that on the north side is the high mountainous shore, completely covered with many kinds of lofty trees, and amongst others are many cedars and spruce trees, as excellent for making masts of ships of 300 tons or more as it is possible to find. On this north shore we did not see a single spot clear of timber, except in two places near the water's edge, where there were meadows and very pretty ponds. End quote. I love the simple yet inspired description. It's hard not to have this vision of these two ships skimming along the pristine waters on a bright summer day. It's idyllic, and I credit Cartier for being able to convey that emotion. Anyhow, Cartier and his ships would move into Chalier Bay, and since it was a large, wide bay, he hoped it would be something greater, like a passage, such as the Strait of Bell Island. So the fleet would do what they always did. They took readings, marked shoals, explored bays and coves. On July 4th, they would put into a place called San Martin's Cove. They would remain there until July 12th. The crew gathered food and firewood, while Cartier would lead the longboats further west into the bay to explore. It doesn't say specifically why Cartier did this, but my guess is that there were lots of shallows to explore, and the longboats were ideal for such a task. 
On July 6th, the fleet would have their first major encounter with a native tribe. The French would sight 40 to 50 bark canoes crossing the bay. When the canoes landed, the natives indicated to the French to come to them, holding up items, such as furs, to trade. The French, who were in their longboats, would continue on to their ships. Cartier simply did not trust the natives at this point. The natives, upon seeing the French row away, sent two of their larger canoes to follow the French longboats. However, Cartier would order his cannons to fire a couple of warning shots to frighten away the natives. The next day, the natives would again make gestures to the French longboats, waving at them to come to their camp on the shore. And thus, Cartier would take a longboat and have his first interactions with the natives, who were likely Mi'kmaq. And things went well. The Mi'kmaq were keen to trade, especially for anything made of iron. The French swapped beads, knives, mirrors, needles, and small bells for furs, food, and pretty much anything the Mi'kmaq had to offer. The chief of the Mi'kmaq was given a bright red cap. As far as first encounters went, it was a success. The French and the Mi'kmaq would have more trading sessions over the next week. Cartier says the Mi'kmaq numbers grew as high as 300 at one location. One note here, the Mi'kmaq people were quick to trade with the French. Why were they so quick to approach these people who were very different, even alien to them? Some speculate that the eagerness to engage with the French indicates that the Mi'kmaq had previous encounters with European ships. This is certainly a possibility, but we don't know the answer. Anyhow, on July 8th, the longboats would reach the end of the bay and find no passage, and thus the fleet would move on five days later. On the north side of Shaler Bay is a large finger of land that sticks out into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. This is the Gaspé Peninsula in modern-day Quebec. As the fleet came up this peninsula, they encountered another group of native people. The chief of these people was a man named Donacona. Cartier quickly came to see that they were different from the Mi'kmaq. They were, in fact, St. Lawrence Iroquois. They had come east to fish and trade. The Iroquois were friendly and good-spirited, and they traded furs and fish to the French. Cartier, however, said that they stole anything that was left unattended. We have seen this with other native peoples around the world. Cultures often have a different idea of ownership and simply take things that aren't being used. Cartier said he believed that the natives would be easy to convert to Christianity, although he made no attempts to preach to the natives. The language barrier would have been far too difficult. As for the Gaspé Peninsula, this was good land. There was abundant hunting and fishing, plus corn, beans, and fruit, and Cartier quickly understood its maritime potential. Gaspé Bay offered a large safe harbor, and, as we are about to find out, this was not far from the entrance to the St. Lawrence River. Cartier would be told that the native's village was not far up the nearby waterway, and even more important, that there were powerful kingdoms that lay further to the west. This is what Cartier wanted to hear. Waterways into the continent, great kingdoms, sounds like China to me. Anyhow, the French would stay on the Gaspé Peninsula until June 25th due to bad weather. Up to this point, the native people and the French had gotten along pretty well, but just before departing, Cartier would do something that would prove to be provocative. On July 24, 1534, Cartier and his men erected a 30-foot-high cross, or 9 meters, on the shore. Inscribed on the cross were the words, Long live the King of France. He would then hold a ceremony, claiming these newly discovered lands for the French crown. The natives understood that this monument wasn't just a simple guide marker, but a physical claim of dominion over the area. Donacona was not happy and expressed his anger, saying he ruled this area. He indicated to Cartier that he wanted the cross taken down. Now, at this point, Cartier knew that he would have to head back to France sooner than later. If he waited too long, his ships would get caught in the dangerous storms that hit the North Atlantic in the fall and winter. What Cartier wanted to do was come back to the region in the future, but with translators. 
The lack of communication with the natives was a huge barrier. So how was he to get translators? Well, he had to bring them back to France and teach them the language. Thus, Cartier told Donacona that he wanted to take back to France two of the chief's sons, Domagaya and Teu Aini. They would be treated well while they learned the French language and French culture. They would then return the following year with all sorts of valuable trade goods. The chief reluctantly agreed to this plan, and he said the cross could stay up. The French would give him a bunch of trade goods, including axes and knives. I want to note that this was a classic tactic that had been used by Spanish and Portuguese explorers for a hundred years. You reach an area that you don't know the language, you grab a few native people, bring them back to your country, and then have them learn your language and customs. You then return to the lands of the kidnapped natives, and they are your translators, key elements in establishing new trade networks. Now, Cartier says that he asked Donacona if he could take his sons, but it would not be out of the realm of possibility that he just grabbed the two and dictated the terms of the arrangement. And who knows exactly what Donacona believed was going to happen. Considering the language barrier between the French and the natives, it's unlikely the chief knew his sons would be gone for a year. No matter, Cartier would depart from the Gaspé Peninsula, the chief's two sons with him, and head north on July 25th. Now, if you again look at your map of this region and go straight north from the Gaspé Peninsula across the water, maybe 80 miles or so, you reach Quebec. In between, there is a large island, Anticosti Island, which measures 222 kilometers long, or 138 miles, and 56 kilometers, or 35 miles, wide. However, as you look west, you see nothing but a great flow of water coming towards you. This was the mouth of the mighty St. Lawrence River, one of the greatest inland waterways in the world. As Cartier looked into this great river, he must have felt sure that this was the route to the Pacific that he had been searching for, and the great kingdoms the Iroquois had spoken of were probably the Chinese or some other exotic empire. Cartier would have loved to explore more, but time was ticking. After consulting with his crew, they voted to return home. At this point in the journey, the ships were not really at risk for getting frozen in. However, sailing the North Atlantic waters as fall neared was tempting fate. Better to depart early than late. The fleet would continue north, explore Anticosti Island and the southern shore of Quebec, before heading back east. By the way, I want to point out that this was not that simple of a job. As I noted earlier, the Gulf of St. Lawrence is filled with islands, big and small. There are reefs and shoals to deal with, tricky winds and dangerous currents. Anticosti Island is one of the most dangerous places in the region, earning it the nickname Graveyard of the Gulf, due to more than 400 recorded shipwrecks on its shores. Cartier and his ships would skirt along the northern edge of the Gulf of St. Lawrence and return to the Strait of Belle Isle. In doing this, Cartier had done a pretty good circle of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. The ships would depart for France on August 15th, reaching Saint-Malo on September 4th. It had been another swift crossing. The entire journey had taken 137 days. Cartier had not lost a single ship or a single man. Having researched so many voyages of exploration, that's pretty amazing. But know that his next expedition will not be so lucky. So Jacques Cartier was back in France. I'd call his expedition a success, but incomplete. He had found no gold or gems and no route to the Far East, but opportunities abounded. Fishing, furs, and timber offered potentially lucrative commercial opportunities and there were plenty of places to build settlements and trading posts. But the big opportunity was to the west, down the great waterway that Cartier had spied as he sailed past Anticosti Island. This was, as noted, the St. Lawrence River. And while Cartier had not sailed down the river just yet, he had seen the entrance. He just had to return. So, once back in France, Cartier no doubt made a presentation about his journey, 
complete with PowerPoint slides and lots of bullet points, or at least some sketches and written descriptions of what he had seen, plus the opportunities that lay ahead. And the powers that be would agree with Cartier. He was ordered to return the following year with a bigger and better fleet. So, a few notes about the first voyage of Jacques Cartier. 1. The two natives he brought back to France, Damagayu and Tainu Aini, would be instructed in the ways of the French. This included learning the language and customs and dressing like a European. The two, Cartier expected, would be translators for the next voyage. As a note, Cartier expected these two young men to embrace their position as translators for the French. In his eyes, he was offering these guys a way to escape life as a savage in the wilderness. He fully expected the two to be loyal to him and work for his interests above all. Note 2. I want to stress the accomplishments of Cartier. He had sailed into the unknown and, for the most part, returned intact and with all sorts of new information. He was the first European to discover the Gulf of St. Lawrence, mapping hundreds of miles of coastlines and islands in the process, and he had found the mouth of the St. Lawrence River. These are big things and foundation steps for the eventual French settlement of Canada. Note 3. Cartier's descriptions of the native peoples of the St. Lawrence region make him Canada's first ethnologist, and the stuff that he talks about is important because it provides details of people that would change very rapidly or just disappear. The St. Lawrence Iroquois essentially stopped existing about 50 years after Cartier's first visit, mostly due to warfare with other native tribes, possibly over control of the burgeoning trade with Europe. And I want to add that Cartier just didn't provide descriptions of the natives. He actually compiled a list of words and their French equivalents. You don't see those kinds of things very often in this era. So that is where we will leave things for today. Cartier had returned to France and was preparing for a second voyage to the St. Lawrence region, his intention to explore the St. Lawrence River, and hopefully find that treasured passage to the Pacific Ocean. So that is it for today. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network, a curated podcast network featuring some of the leading storytellers and thought leaders in audio entertainment. Some other podcasts on the network include Art Smart and Into the Impossible. Check it all out at airwavemedia.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.